All right, welcome to the conversation. You got a great guest for you guys. Duvalier Malone is the author of Those Who Give a Damn, a manual for making a difference, so I already like it. I want to talk to him about the book a little bit and also about current events a little bit. So Duvalier, welcome to the show, how are you? I'm doing well, how are you? Thank you for having me. Uh, no problem, uh, I'm good too. So uh, first, tell me about the book, I'm curious. How do I make a difference, what's it about? Absolutely. So. Uh, my book is a uh, semi um, um, a manual as well as just a uh, biography of my life. Uh, I grew up in Mississippi in poverty uh, and was raised by a grandmother who uh, grew up during the civil rights movement uh, and worked really hard during the civil rights movement in Mississippi with Megger Evers, um, especially uh, Megger Evers on the uh, Emmett Till case and working uh, on voting rights across the state of Mississippi during the civil rights movement. And so my grandmother mother raised me in that environment and taught me those stories. And throughout my life, I tended to start to care about issues, give a damn about issues in Mississippi, like working to bring down the Confederate flag and working on the Emmett Till case and working on combating poverty and corruption across the state of Mississippi. And I decided to put together a manual to talk to readers who it doesn't matter what, no matter what community you in, no matter what your background is, that you can make a difference in your community. And so uh, the book is simply a uh, inspirational read to challenge you, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're sitting in the boardrooms in corporate America, that when you see something that's not right, that's not just to find a way to get in the way like the late Congressman John Lewis told us and make some noise for change. And so we should give a damn about those issues that uh, you know affect our community. And so that's the gist of, um, of my book. Okay, great. And so uh, there's this story, this devastating story about coming out of Louisiana about uh, the state police troopers there and how they've covered up police violence for a long time. I want to get to the heart of that story in a second, but uh, Duvalier, it's interesting because, and I don't know how to phrase this, and I don't know if I'm going to say it wrong, but uh, I, I grew up on the coast uh, in the Northeast, and then I've lived on the coast my whole life. But I travel a lot, uh, and and so when I'm in the South. I get the sense that African Americans down there are a little bit more deferential and and in a sense take more crap than the folks that I grew up with and that in in other parts of the in the country. And I always wondered about that. And I was like, well, look, we're in the year whatever it is, right? Back, you know, to whether it was 2010, 2015, 2021 now. And I thought like, well, like don't why are we still doing this, right? And, and it was obvious yeah. to me that I was missing something in the culture because I didn't grow up in that exact culture. And it, and I, it was reminded of that in the Louisiana story that came out a little bit earlier this week. Because there's like horrific abuse against African Americans in Louisiana and, and nobody would hear them out. And I, and I connected back to that and you just said you were from Mississippi anyways, all this connected in my mind. And, and so I wanted to ask you, growing up in Mississippi, and I don't know how many other places you've lived in uh, it, it, since then in your life, but is there is there still the, this kind of oppressive culture where, hey, if uh, someone who's African American speaks up too much, that that becomes a significant problem for that person, their family, etc. Just, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. I don't know. That's why I'm asking. 
absolutely not. The South is changing. Um, I'll tell you during the Black Lives Matter movement, there were uh, hundreds and thousands of people who joined together in Jackson, Mississippi uh, to show and stand in solidarity with the family of George Floyd. Um, I uh, organized a rally um, for Emmett Till um, demanding justice and I had hundreds of people to join me there. Uh, so people are, uh, it's a generation of leaders in Mississippi that are rising up and they are speaking truth to power. They are using their circles of influence to demand change. And so you will see that that generation of Mississippians are still there who may be afraid to speak up. But there's also a rising generation in Mississippi that is bold, that is courageous, and that's doing some extremely good work. And the South is changing. I currently reside here in Washington, D.C. But when I go back home to Mississippi, the South is changing, Mississippi is changing. And it's changing in a positive direction. When we saw the Mississippi Confederate flag come down, we had been working on that issue for many years. But protesters, activists, and lawmakers, and everyone in the community, black, white, and in between, got together and they spoke up and they applied the pressure to, to legislators and lawmakers, and that flag came down. And so, the mere fact of that flag come down is showing us that Mississippi is changing. And Mississippi, I think, is moving in the right direction. It has a lot of work to do, but I believe that Mississippi is moving in the right direction. Yeah, and so look, don't get me wrong, some of the strongest leaders we have now come out of the South. Gary Chambers Jr. is a wonderful, really strong activist coming out of Louisiana. And obviously, Martin Luther King back in the day came from the South. and. Uh, Reverend William Barber's from North Carolina, and so uh, it, it, it's just it, the culture viscerally felt different uh, than it than it does in some other parts of the country, and that that's what I was sensing. But let's talk about that Louisiana case, and so uh, in that case, the Associated Press did a great job of reviewing all these uh, tapes that the Louisiana State Police had been covering up and not sharing with the the public, and it showed horrific abuse. Of and African Americans in particular, although there were some cases where it was poor white people and and they and they beat the hell out of them too and put them in the hospital and would constantly lie about it and the cops would all cover up for each other. It was just a very matter of course. And so when you see something like that, how how discouraging is that? That wow, geez, we're in the year 2021 and there's still no accountability. For brutal actions against African Americans on a regular basis by state officials, people empowered by the state of Louisiana with a badge and a gun. Absolutely, you know, this is the time that it's time for the federal government. It's time for the Department of Justice to begin to take a look. I know that they are taking a look in Georgia, for instance, and they're looking in Minnesota. But I think it's time for the Department of Justice to take a look and take and see what's going on in Louisiana. We know that the Deep South and Louisiana and Mississippi. There is a dark history, there's a dark stain and pain that's that's there. And that comes from generation of racism and, and thoughts and ideas that have been placed in the mind of so many in our community and not just police officers, but this happens in all different aspects of the community. But I think in order for us to see change in that police department, we have to hold them accountable. And I think when we look at the corruption that has taken place there in Louisiana, it is going to take a department of justice unbiased 
serious investigation to take a look at this. The mere fact that this happened and in one of the cases in Ronald Green, it happened two years ago. And the evidence was you know, sealed and hidden. How many other cases that are out there in Louisiana that are just like that Ronald Green case, right? And so it, it, we need to you know, have the Department of Justice to open up a case. We saw in the uh, Armard um, Arby case in Georgia that the DA was uh, indicted. And so it's, we're moving in, um, in, a, in a, a way in this country where we, the founding fathers talk about a more perfect union, and and I think when we expose these instances and we investigate them, and justice is served, that is us moving into that more perfect union that the ideas that our founding fathers had. Yeah, and the Ronald Green case is deeply disturbing. We covered it on the show when the tape first came out, and the cops had said that that he was killed in a car chase when he crashed into a tree and then he'd flown out of the windshield and hit the tree. Now you see the tape, no such thing happened. They took him out, they handcuffed him, they beat him to death and dragged him around by the feet as he was handcuffed with his hands behind his back. It looked like a modern day lynching. And so that, like you said, that happened two years ago and then they covered it up for a really long period of time. Look, Dwalier, I don't know what to do about it. And you know, you wrote a book about what to do about it. But, but you know, no matter how much we ask at the national level, we got nothing. We got Democrats in charge. They're still negotiating with Tim Scott and Lindsey Graham, and they're not going to get any real police reform out of that. And I don't know how long black people are going to get beat down in this country. And and what can we do to fix it? You know, it's gonna take three. It's gonna take all different parts. It's gonna take us at the state and local level to elect sheriff department officers and 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 people that are in those elective officials that are gonna legislate on our behalf and and be able to protect our community. And so, you know, it starts on the local level, making sure that you have the right elective officials, the board of aldermen, the mayor, all of these people who are who have oversight of these departments, making sure that they are elected and they they are representing the people. And it's not good enough for us to stand on the sidelines. It's going to take that those white officers who witnessed this to happen to start coming forward. Go to the FBI, start speaking up, start being. And that's what my books talk about, that when we see something that's not right, to speak up about it. And it doesn't take the Department of Justice that when this Ronald Green case happened, had one of those officers had the courage enough to come forth and to speak out about this. If somebody in that department, you can't make me believe that someone in that department did not know what was going on. Ronald Green is not the first case, but if they would use that that information and came forth and talked to the officials who could investigate and to indict the individuals who were holding this evidence, we can move towards that that process of justice in this country. And one of the other things that we have to do, we have to elect people who are in our best interest. When when you just open up, you talked about the Lindsey Grahams and the uh, and the Tim um, uh, Reed that are out in South Carolina. We have to elect people that are going to represent the majority of this country. And when we see what lawmakers are doing. 
here in Washington, we have to evaluate them and we have to send them home. It is no reason why the George Floyd anti-police bill is not passed. It's no reason why the John Lewis voting rights bill is not passed. It's no reason why the Emmett Till anti-lynching act is not passed, making lynching illegal in every 50 state in this country. There is an issue in Washington and the issue is the people that we're sending here to represent us and they're playing with the lives of so many different African-Americans people and policy that happens in Washington has the ability to affect on the state and local level. But it cannot happen when we use this bureaucracy and we never get anything done in this country. All right, Duvalier Malone, you're absolutely right. And by the way, we're all sick of it and we wish our politicians would finally serve us for a change. The book is Those Who Give a Damn Manual for Making a Difference. Thank you, Duvalier, we appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All right, back on the conversation. Look, if there's one thing you guys want to discuss, and I hear it all the time, is please talk about property appraisals in Columbus, Ohio. And all right, fine, fine, we will. Okay, so that's why we brought in a great guest, Michael Stinziano, and he was the Franklin County Auditor. And of course, the reality here is that it actually is very important because some of the implicit racial bias that goes into it. And my God, if it affects your property values, it's probably a few things that affect you more in your life. Because most of America's wealth is in their homes. So it's almost like a home robbery when they appraise it wrong. And then when they appraise it wrong on purpose, it's even worse. So Michael, welcome to the program. Thanks for the opportunity to be here and you framed it really well. Okay, good. Thank you. So you were the auditor there, and you've studied this, and and you're, and there's a is there an appraisal coming up in Ohio in 2023? So in Ohio, we do appraisals every six years, and the last major one was 2017. Took office in 2018, and one of the commitments of the community was conducting a performance audit. That audit led to a desire for additional analysis using that racial bias lens and it is all building to the next 2023 mass appraisal. Okay, so let's talk about that. What did you guys find in the audit? And so both for folks who are familiar with it and are frustrated by it, but maybe even more importantly for the folks who are not, ah, racial bias, what do you mean? Is it real? So tell us what you found. So the performance audit that was conducted based on the last 2017 mass appraisal really showed that there were areas within our Franklin County, Columbus, Ohio community that weren't being graded the same. So properties that were similar size, similar features, yet you could look pretty easily based on the history of redlining our community that they were being disproportionately graded in different ways. From there, wanting then to look further, had a great partnership with the Kerwin Institute, which is through Ohio State University, really looking at that racial lens. And what they found in the last decade, so from 2017 to about 2019, that if they were traditionally more white areas, they had a higher increase in valuations. If they were more traditionally minority areas, they had some of the larger devaluations. And so that was the concern. And so what we're looking now is how to address that, make sure our appraisal process is addressing any implicit bias, understanding that the policies of redlining have compounded to create this issue and really working hard to make sure that all property owners understand that their value is accurate and fair. So Michael, before we get to why, so I just want to make sure that I'm clear on this. We're not talking about, hey, the houses in Beverly Hills cost more than the houses in Compton. 
We're talking about similar houses, and 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 basically, my question is, how do you know? So, very complicated appraisal, a process that gets conducted, but in and sales come into it, but it. We have the features. We have a property card for all in, in Franklin County, 450,000 parcels. And so we're able to look with that piece as a component. Then when you look further with the location and into that grading component, that's where we felt there was more that could be evaluated. And so we asked the first performance audit folks, you know, do you think there could be additional analysis needed here? They agreed, we conducted that. And so that's when that additional study occurred. Yeah, so I don't want people to get mistaken and think like, oh yeah, well of course the houses in Beverly Hills cost more, not just in Compton, but in my neck of the woods, in Kentucky or wherever I am, right? Of course there's different property values. The question is when they're similar size, similar plots, similar houses, and sometimes very near one another, but there's almost a, well, there used to be a literal red line, at least on a map, that separates them. And then you have different values on that. And it turns out it's because one area is black and another one's white. Then we've got a real issue because, God, like I said, almost all of your wealth is in your house if you're an average American family. And so if they're artificially saying your property is worth less, they're, in a sense, robbing you of a huge percentage of your wealth. And so that's why what you're doing, Michael, is so important. But go ahead, sorry. So we agree, and that was the biggest concern, that there's an opportunity to address some of the disparity, not in our, just in our community, but from the historical policies that were created. The opportunity of these homes being a opportunity to move through economic progressions, being in a better position, that wealth building is important. In Franklin County, we have what is always deemed in the last five years, one of the hottest real estate markets, but that's not being shared equally by everyone in our community. And so that's where the valuation plays such an important role. So Michael, before we get to why they're doing it today, tell us about the redlining that happened in the 1930s and beyond. And because a lot of people might not know what that is. So prior to my service on at the county as county auditor, I served on Columbus City Council and our council president maintained one of those maps, held it in his office to show the history of our community and how over time systematic processes were put in place that certain neighborhoods were not going to be able to receive the same loans, that there were racial covenants put in place, that it really impacted the ability of people based on race to move through different communities, different neighborhoods. And Columbus, Ohio, very similar to a number of other jurisdictions, not only Ohio, but across the country where that process was done intentionally to make sure that certain communities, primarily African American, weren't able to advance and be kind of packed into certain areas. On top of that in our area, you saw highway systems come through. And just depending what side of a highway you live on makes a huge difference, unfortunately, through the nature and history of what the appraisal process has been under Ohio law. Yeah, so guys, it was not at all subtle and it was not accidental, it was not implicit, it was explicit. And and it was not just in the 1930s, it went all the way to 1977 until they passed the Community Reinvestment Act. And then it continued probably informally afterwards, but formally it continued all the way through the 70s. And, and it wasn't just segregation, it wasn't that we were separated. It was that on top of that, you layer on top of it. Okay, now the areas that are segregated in black don't get loans, they get lower property values. I mean, it's just brutal 
in how they systematically robbed the African American community of the wealth they could have had, right? And and that the rest of Americans were accruing. And it was all done under cover of night and it was done in a silent way. So you never knew you were being robbed. And so, although of course a lot of people had a sense. Now today, um, it's if a banker took out a red marker and drew a line, he'd be in a lot of trouble if people found out. So how does it happen today? So one of our challenges is making sure that the participation that property owners have in helping establish the value, making sure we have the information is reflective of our entire community. And it's been very clear in my few years as county auditor that we don't have that shared participation. And so again, not intentional, but without property owners aware of that history, aware of their role and ability to play a part of it, it continues to compound the concern and the issue. And so today it's just kind of been built off of the previous system. We're digging in, we're making sure they're appropriately valued, addressing those land grades, but making sure that we have the participation education of our entire community. And so when they're valued in a certain way, the concern here is that it's gonna affect the sale price when they eventually do sell, right? And and that's where they can make a $10,000 difference, a $25,000, these are big numbers. Am I understanding that right? Absolutely, and I would say more than ten or twenty thousand, upwards of fifty, hundred, one hundred and fifty thousand, and that has a huge impact on being able to move through, you know, that starter home to the next home, to growing other additional wealth that housing provides in our country. Yeah, and so now that it's implicit bias, probably the assumptions of a lot of people, oh, that's a bad neighborhood. Is it based on crime or other actual information that you could prove? No, it's based on a bias that that, that person has, and maybe oftentimes doesn't even know that they have, right? And so, so, so go ahead, Michael, no. So that's been the part of just the appraisal process. It's an industry as well that doesn't reflect our, the diversity in, in a Franklin County community. And it isn't intentional bias. Uh, that's been one of the challenges we've had in working with some of our staff. We're not calling anyone a racist, uh, but we understand that there were racial history, uh, implicit and explicit actions that occurred that led to this discrepancy. Yeah, and so, and I know people get super uh, touchy about it. On the other hand, uh, the other guy's getting robbed of $100,000. So he's got a right to be way more touchy about it. And so, okay, given that people are touchy about it, but it's so important and it's got to be corrected. How do you tackle that? How do you go about fixing it? So our first is access to our process. You know, There's a way in which property owners can challenge. We understand it's a very bureaucratic system. There may be intimidation just dealing with a county courthouse system. So we've worked with our local legal aid society, making sure that property owners that need a better understanding through the process get some representation. And so have been appreciative of Legal Aid's partnership to providing those opportunities. We also have been working hard that there's homeowner assistance programs. Again, making sure that people understand the importance of the value of their home and making sure we get it right and where they have that role. And so really doing our best, not just on education, but making sure that we're getting the participation. And then the appraisers as well, having the appraisers understand what implicit bias is, how when they hear a certain neighborhood, even if the features are the same, what the history of that neighborhood they may or may not have, 
may play a role in having additional checks. So it won't just be one person in our 2023 uh, process that's going to sign off and say this is the appropriate value, but we're going to have additional folks in play um, to make sure that we're eliminating any of those factors. All right, uh, Michael, we really appreciate you joining on, uh, joining us and, and sh- uh, putting a spotlight on this issue because uh, it, it, it makes such an enormous difference. Um, and, uh, and right now, the average white family has 10 times the wealth of the average black family. And people think, oh, you know, the old way of thinking is, oh, you see that it's about hard work, et cetera. No, it's about systemically not allowing them to accumulate wealth. In the past, explicitly, very explicitly, and now implicitly, and and especially based on homes, because that's where almost all of our wealth is as Americans. So, uh, again, thank you for the good work, uh, Franklin County Auditor Michael Stinziano. We appreciate it. Thank you.